Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to Frapow. We're your hosts, Odd and Rags. This week, we have the pleasure of interviewing Rachel Rodden, who is now our um, also one of our new Derby best friends, and we're very excited. And um, we can call her bro now. <laughs> so great. Um, what a point of honor. Um, she is a little bit of everything. She is a producer, marketer, content manager, um, and communications professional. Um, she has like a lot of experience in tech, um, startups, music, uh, television, film, education, and sports. Um, and beyond all of those incredible things that she's done, she also has um, produced two award-winning documentaries, which are really cool. Um, and she also plays roller derby for Angel City in Los Angeles. Um, she does coaching and she also does stunt work on roller skates, which is so fucking cool. I was going to say also, also, she has a taxidermy collection. Oh yeah, she has a taxidermy collection. Um, her stunt work included, um, some work on the recent movie Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn, which is like a new cool roller derby or it's a new mo- movie that's like popular in the roller derby community because there's some really epic like action things on roller skates it's really cool um but all around we talk about a little bit about everything and how amazing rachel is at life and just you know she's a great amazing interesting human um and she also has lots of taxidermy which is cool Um, thank you so much, Rachel, for coming, uh, well, not coming because you're not here, but talking to us and making some time, um, to speak to us, especially during all this, like, craziness. Um, well, I guess for us, we always really like to start out pretty easy. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, I always stumble a little bit with the like, tell me a little bit about yourself because I um, always opt for very little. Like, this is my name, and then and then if I start talking, I go way too long. So, um, I guess the uh, starting with the simple stuff. My name is Rachel Rotten. I skate for Angel City. Uh, I've been playing roller derby for ten years. Um, and I'm also a lot of other things in my life, but I am, um, a publicist. I, you know, work in PR and, um, I also work in entertainment and I have had a lot of really, um, interesting life experiences as a result of that. Yeah. I think that at least from what the bio that you sent me, um, and like just uh, things that the world knows about Rachel Rodden is that you have like your hand in a lot of different things, which is really, really cool. Um, so it also makes it very hard to like have just like a 
thing. Like, I yeah. think my like big, yeah. biggest criticism of myself is always like that I do too much, you know, that I'm always kind of like trying to do too many things in too many places with, you know, too many people. And I'm a perfectionist. So I try to do them all really well. And then so that I'm really tired a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I think that's how I feel a lot of the times. Like, I like I don't really that's not really great. But like, I like things a lot. Like my partner has like, he is in history and he loves history and has loved it since like kindergarten. I've never liked anything for that long, but I like lots of things that same amount if you spread it around. I mean, yes, I, I'm with you in that one because I think that there is such an insane, insanely large amount of interesting information and experiences in the world to absorb that um, just kind of picking one feels very limiting. But I could see how history could be a fun one to pick because there is an endless wealth of it, um, depending on the, you know, the perspective and era and you know uh, topic specifically that you want to look into. I mean, everything that we do every day is in real time creating a history of some sort. So um, I guess if you're going to pick a thing, that's a good one. That's a good (laughs) one to pick. (laughs) Well, I think that like having so many interests, just it makes life more fun and interesting. I mean, I'm somebody who like, it's so hard to pin me down on one thing because like, I know this and I know that. And I can tell you about like, I can tell you about food and power in society but like medieval society and I'm published on that. But then like, oh yeah, no, I just do like all this other shit for shits and giggles. Cause like, it's fun. It makes me happy, you know? And I, I love just having all these weird skills and weird tidbits of information. Cause like, why not? It's fun. It makes life more interesting. And I don't like to be one dimensional. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny that you, you put it that way. I, um, Fun fact about me, I actually, my degree from university is in anthropology. So I like, (laughs) I also know about food and power in like various eras and various cultures. Um, I also um, Mm -hmm. was really interested um, at at the time that I was getting my degree, I wanted to be an archaeologist because like the first thing I ever said I wanted to be when I was a kid was Indiana Jones. And like, that's a person, not a job, but like, that's you can see how that would lead me to um wanting to be an archaeologist and at some point my lens shifted because of um you know at the time that I was in college it was uh you know right before the last recession and the availability of resources for archaeology programs was like pretty small and I was worried about being able to support myself after college because I don't come from um you know parents that were like you know, swimming in Scrooge McDuck money that could support me living in Los Angeles. So I also had to think realistically about what I could um, have as an applicable skill. So I shifted away from um, the archaeology part of anthropology and and focused more on um, cultural anthropology. And um, but when I was still on the archaeology track, I was really into paleopathology. Um, so like studying, mm. you know, the human remains to see how like diseases and environmental conditions, um, tell the story of where people were at, at that time. Um, and so that's why I have like a little bit of a weird obsession with like dead things and death. Also, taxidermy. I just find it taxidermy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I find right. 
I find it so fascinating. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I remember flat out telling people, but like, I study history because I like dead things. They don't talk back. They do have a lot to tell, but they don't talk back. Um, And it's just, I don't know. It's so broad and it's so fun. And there's so many different things that you can look at. I mean, we're also just big nerds at this stage. (laughs) I know. I'm like, we're... We're like seven minutes in and so many people have probably been like, I'm done with this episode. Goodbye. (laughs) So I really like that you have this, you know, all this experience and everything um, with media, you know, both like being in media, but also that PR angle and then also making documentaries. Um, How has that uh, overlapped with your life in roller derby? It's funny. I said once um, in an interview that I forgot that I gave, but recently saw because somebody sent it to me. Um, <laughs> I I once said that, like, it's so interesting how people always talk about how this, like, talking point that, like, roller derby saves your soul. Um, and I never felt like it saved me. I felt like it, like, helped me find my soul. And so... To that end, I feel like it was the place that I finally met all of the people who I could collaborate with on all of the creative ideas that I had that I didn't know what to do with. And so it really ended up being the engine that introduced me to some of the most important people in my life that allowed me to be all those things and to do all those things. So, um, you know, before I started skating, Um, I worked, my first job out of college was working at a production company and I was a casting producer. Um, and like a lot of my job was to recruit really interesting people for reality television. Um, and you can read into that however you want. Sometimes they were interesting. Sometimes they were terrible, right? Like I worked on like quite a few shows, um, that a lot of people would remember, um, and helped develop, you know, the fact that these characters existed on TV. And so from a very early uh, time in my career, I was developing stories and like thinking critically about the kind of people who are doing interesting things or saying interesting things, even if they're not things that I necessarily agree with, as is the case with a lot of people on reality TV. Um, but it it really um, developed my lens of storytelling. And so once I started playing roller derby, um, I met a skater in my league who ended up becoming my roommate. And she too was, you know, one of those people who is, um, impossibly inspired every day. Like every day she would come home and have a new idea for something. Um, and that enthusiasm is so infectious and really was an opportunity to just funnel all of that um, enthusiasm and energy into multiple projects. So because of her, her name's Erica Tremblay, um, her skate name was Go Go Gidget. And uh, when we lived together, she came home one day and was like, I want to make a documentary. Like, do you have any money in savings? Like, what if we go in on it together? And Mm -hmm. I was like, sure, why not? Like, let's like, how much do you need? Is $2,000 enough? Like, that was kind of where we were at. Like, that was savings. And it also allowed us to like have something to come home and work on together, you know, when we weren't skating, um, like to sit down and just make something that was truly our own. And, uh, the first documentary, you know, 
was like a, a an amazing learning experience, and it then it eventually parlayed itself into uh, in the turn, which was a, do- a roller derby documentary um, mm-hmm. that was about the queer community in roller derby. And it's funny because I go back and watch it now, and um, I think that there's so many beautiful things about it. And I also realize how much I've learned about like the world since then, and how much we've all learned about ourselves and our community since then. Um, I think it's exactly where we were at at that time. Um, but in that way, it is um, very much, it, it's a, a perfect portrait of that time in roller derby. And so it's really special and nostalgic to me. And um, I just remember at one point sitting down um, with her and um, Bernard, one of our producers who was also um, a friend of mine who worked in uh, television and um, a girl named Genevieve. And we like sat in a pile of papers and we were like overwhelmed because we had too many stories to tell. And it it just felt like we had more than we knew what to do with. Um, and it's such an embarrassment of riches to have that because, you know, sometimes you really are scraping the bottom of the barrel with uh, in, in the media, like looking for the goodness. And when you're a part of a community that has such a wealth of goodness, you're just like, how does anybody else move through the world without this much like goodness that they can't even sort through it? Um, and so they're just like little moments like that, that really um, like, you know, have have solidified like roller derby's importance in my life, like not even like from a sport perspective, but just as like a conduit for meeting like really important creative people that have influenced me every step of the way. Um, I feel like I went on like a journey. Just now, no, I'm not sure if great, I answered your question. No, it was <laughs> great because we we talk a lot about how um, like from roller derby is a microcosm. And that, like, it is what you say, like, you go in and there are, there is just, like, so much goodness. And I'm not really sure what it is about the sport that um, makes certain people, like, attracted to it. But I, like, go in and feel, like, so empowered by all the different types of people that are there. And who, like, for all the reasons that they're there and all the things that they do, like, it's crazy. Like, on our um, on my old league, when we skated together, we, um, had like a microbiologist and we had like, we have like an investment accountant and we have like all these hilariously different people who are just like so good and just want to be there and like share their goodness with people. It's, I like, yeah, it's a really special place. And I mean, it, because of like all the energy, I agree. There's a lot of creative energy in it. I mean, that's how this podcast got started was because Odd and I just decided that like we we needed to start something and we've been talking about it. And it's like, okay, well, let's just do it because we have to. You know, there there's so much energy that can be used and there's so much goodness that can be used that it's just like well why don't we tap into it and harness it the reason why we have this podcast is because of the roller derby community across the board yeah and and isn't it just yes i think that the the beauty of it and and i think that this might be true of 
of you know any hobby or or community but it really is an opportunity to like find the people that your life wouldn't have intersected with unless you put yourself into some kind of social situation that that required that you interact with people outside of you know your job or your friend circle or the store that you go to every day or the park that you walk in every day um like just that act that simple act of putting yourself out there introduces you to like new people and new perspectives in in these ways that end up changing your life um you know the my working now um like you know shifting away from when i was uh working directly in television because like like real talk i left because i didn't feel good about the tel- some of the television i was putting out into the world so um but shifting into what I'm doing now, you know, again, roller derby, like the the founder of the agency that um, I'm vice president of, um, she was she was a skater. And we met, you know, like early in our derby careers are we knew who each other were for the majority of our careers. Um, we weren't like close friends, but we had mutual friends. And like, you know, we ran in like similar adjacent parallel circles. And, um, you know, it just like timing was everything. And she told a mutual friend of ours, um, that she was, you know, looking for someone to partner with, to like grow the agency that she had created because she, you know, had a table flip, uh, like quitting her agency story. Um, like many of us get, have these great table flip, like job quitting stories. Um, and the timing was just right because I was um, consulting at the time. I was working on a couple TV shows and I was wanting something a little bit more solid to pour my energy into. I had hopped from project to project for a couple of years and I was really craving some consistency and I was feeling that like yearning to build something. And the thing about like, you know, consulting and, and moving project to project is just like you never really get that that fulfillment of building something. Um, so, you know, I spoke with her and literally an hour after I spoke with her, she was like, I'm coming down to LA so that we can have lunch in person. And, you know, like, let's talk about like what this actually looks like. And then two weeks later, I was just like face first diving into building this company. And, um, it's been a delight because like her vision was to build an agency that worked primarily with um, founders that don't have access to the kind of world-class PR that like large companies have funding for, because like PR is expensive, you guys, like I, like large agencies are really, really expensive to manage, um, like to manage companies and to manage even startups. Like it is because it's a lot of work. And so I understand why they cost what they cost, but also like, you know, with a lot of like big companies, there's, a lot of other built-in <laughs> expenses um, just based on the the size and the resources and the tools and kind of all of the little things add up to these like big retainers that that cost money. And um, the only people that can afford that are people who historically have money, right? And so like, if you want to talk about from, you know, any sort of uh, like any angle, the people who have money are the people who have power and the people who have power, especially in our country, are the people who've created generational wealth and the people who have created gener- generational wealth are like typically older white men. 
Um, and so that means that, you know, a, a stat that we talk about a lot in my field and, and in startups um, is that, you know, only 2% of venture capital funding a year goes to female founded companies and only a fraction thereof goes to um, companies founded by people of color. And then if you subsegment that to like women of color or like queer women of color, like all of that, like that money gets like those, that dollar bill gets torn up into tiny little shreds to where it's like pennies on the dollar compared to like what other like, you know, white male led companies get. Um, so she really wanted the agency to be mission driven and to work with the kinds of founders that we want to see out in the world who don't have access to the same kind of funding and the same kind of resources that um, that other companies do and to give them sort of that same white glove, like big agency experience, but from human beings who understand who they are, like before they, you know, before they even set foot through the door, which that's the other challenge is like, you know, when you're when you're somebody that has been underrepresented um, in the corporate world, then then asking somebody to tell your story has all these other layers of problems. Um, and so it's just like a, a really like crazy time that we live in because people care about those stories now. And so it means that like we've had this like incredibly like um, heartening experience where we've been able to grow um, our our company just because we decided that like this is who we work with. And like if you are like, you know, we we still take on clients that are, you know, like white men, but like we that you have to align with our values. Mm. Like we like we have absolutely turned down clients that do not align with our values. <laughs> um I don't care how much money they spend. Like, I'm not going to represent somebody who isn't aligned with me on like basic feminism and like, you know, understands rape culture. And like, like I Google every CEO and like if somebody's ever been accused of, you know, harassment, like or assault, like that's a non-starter for us, you know, and we've definitely turned down people before because of that, like just Googling the CEO's name and then you're like, nah, we're good. Like, so. You know, that that also means that, like, there's women doing some, like, badass things. Um, you know, we work with a lot of um, female-founded cannabis, which is interesting because, like, weed is a space that, like, men have also sort of taken over. Um, this, the stats around, like, female-founded cannabis companies are actually kind of depressing because, like, when uh, cannabis first got legalized in a lot of uh, states or in the first couple states, I think the number was around 17% and it's taken a nosedive since then. Um, like 17% of all companies were female founded. And then I think it's actually gotten to be less and less because not because the number of female founders has like they've disappeared, but because the number of male founders has ballooned. Um, so that's been um, that's been really fun working with a lot of like female led cannabis brands. And then um, and the great thing about women is that like we care about other stuff. So like a lot of those women also care about things like the fact that, um, you know, cannabis uh, regulations and uh, the criminalization of drugs has disproportionately affected communities of color. And so a lot of the women that we work with in that space also care about that fact and like do um, work in activism in those spaces as well. So you you kind of get this like amazing blend of of like, you know, smart 
awesome people building like cool products that also like really care about the thing that they're working on and acknowledging the fact that like there is this inherent inequity built in a lot of this. Um, and then, you know, the other vice that we work a lot in is sex. So I work directly with a lot of um, sex tech companies and tell a lot of stories around sex and talk a lot about, you know, destigmatizing like female pleasure and how we look at it, how we talk about it, like, you know, doing a better job of talking about sex work and, um, you know, the and equalizing pleasure and, you know, not looking at it as something, you know, taboo or something that is not deserved or something that is not a priority for people with vaginas. So what does that like look like for you all? Um, Because that's something the two of us are kind of interested in learning more about. Yeah. So um, it looks like different things with different companies, of course. But um, I work with a couple of brands that make sex toys. Um, I work with a like vaginal care lubricant brand. Um, And then uh, that is also like a a little bit of an activist in like the animal rights space because they lobbied the FDA to um, change their animal testing policies for vaginal care products and one, which is great. Oh, good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then um, we work with a birth control company and we work with... um, a uh like a period equity activism organization um we work with a um a a campaign that i worked on with somebody uh was a a genderqueer person who developed a genderless sex toy that also had like an educational webcomic platform um which was super interesting and a like really unique um take on developing products in the space um you know, we like, I kind of get to like dip my hands in all of it, but it, what it looks like day to day is like talking a lot about sex. Um, (laughs) um, but like, for me, it feels very normal and I can, you know, and I know that when I go out in the world, when you could go out in the world that like, that's not very normal for other people. (laughs) Um, so like, I talk very like loudly and openly about, um, just about anything sex related, but you know, like that makes people uncomfortable sometimes. Um, but the women that I work with are, um, you know, they're really all about like owning your pleasure, um, and taking control of, um, your like personal empowerment by like, you know, acknowledging the power that like is within pleasure, like by accepting you know, all of the, all of the complicated things about yourself, whatever that may be, that this is like a very empowering thing. And that like, you shouldn't be afraid to like talk about sex or about sex toys or about advocating for yourself, um, in your relationships for what makes you feel good. Um, and, and however that conversation needs to be had, like it's, uh, every, every version of that conversation is helpful to someone. we work with a company that um, made a lot of headlines because they applied for a technology-based award. And based on the technology of the company, they were awarded that award. It's a company called Lorda Carlo. Um, they were awarded a CES Innovations Award um, in robotics because their um, devices utilize micro-robotics uh, to 
create biomimicry. So they it replicates human motion rather than using vibration as the point of stimulation. So um, like the shaft of the device uh, uses a micro robotic ball that creates like a finger come hither motion. And then the the mouth of the device, um, you know, simulates like a uh, it's a clitoral cup that simulates like a mouth movement. Oh, my God, that's incredible. <laughs> that is amazing technology. It's pretty cool. And so they won this award. But then um, so it's like this interesting thing where like you can look at like engineering specs for something, but not necessarily like look at the application of what that engineering is for. Um, and so after the award was given, um, and we started to, um, you know, plan what the, the next steps with the event would be, they were like, wait, 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 what is this? (laughs) (laughs) And then, so they like, they took it away. It caused this like big media splash because like this particular event has like a history of like not great behavior when it comes to women or when it comes to any sort of like gender equity, like for a long time, the only women that existed at this trade show were in the form of like what they called booth babes. So they were just like, you know, brand ambassadors at booths that were dressed in like skimpy clothes. Um, And, you know, over the years, people continued to call them out for their lack of um, female representation of speakers. So like there was one year that they like two years ago, that they had zero female keynote speakers, zero. And when asked why, like the response they gave, like the between the lines was, you know, that that the that they didn't have anyone qualified. And so people would just send lists of like hundreds of like, you know, w- female technologists that were like very clearly, you know, qualified. And so then, you know, that caused them to change their speaker policy. And so now they have like the the following year they had like 50% women, 50% men, which is great. It's a good step in the right direction. Um, and so this uh, this media frenzy caused them to look at their policies around the exclusion of um, like pleasure technology for vulvas specifically, because there were actually a number of technology companies that had created devices geared towards like men or people with penises. Mm-hmm. And um, that were sort of flying under the radar. But the minute that somebody, you know, applied for something um, that was supposed to be applied to a vulva or that specifically was based around female pleasure, it was like labeled obscene, indecent, profane. Always. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the, the result was that um, they re- they changed their policy around inclusion of sex tech in the show. And this year, um, like sex tech was included in health and wellness, which is uh, an appropriate place for it rather than siloing it off into its own like sex category. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was I a think, really important thing. I, like now that you've started talking about this stuff, I um, I have a few friends who work at um, sex toy stores um, in New York and uh, just like hearing about sort of the things that are coming out and like you now have like apps that you know you can use or your partner can use with a toy or like all this like crazy stuff and yeah that makes total sense to me totally there's so much amazing technology happening in sex tech um that you know the the argument wasn't like look at my company the argument was stop overlooking 
the advances that sex tech brings to technology, right? Like the thing that the thing that a lot of people, you know, you have to like dig back a little bit into the history books, uh, but like a, a really great argument for sex tech is like this uh, sex is the reason why VHSs are were what we used for many decades because the two leading like video uh, vessels at that time were Betamax and VHS and VHS was what porn could sell films on. And so that's ultimately why Betamax died out because the accessibility of, um, of porn to use VHS uh, and to, to mass market it is why, like why every movie started coming out on VHS and why VHS became like the, the most popular medium. Uh, like sex work is also the reason why we have most online payment portals. The sex work, isn't that like one of the oldest professions in the world as well? Like sex sells and it has historically done wonders for so many industries along with civilization. Yeah. And it's, it's mind blowing to me that like, it's not, um, I, I understand why it's not respected as a profession, I guess. Um, but I also don't understand it because, you know, like it's, it's as old as, you know, woodworking or like stone masonry. It, it truly like it is, um, you know, it's a, it's a service that like, you know, you're able to provide in as much as you're able to like build something or make something like you can do this. So I know that different people have different opinions on it. Um, and, and I think that like, it's okay to, to feel like you maybe don't understand it or not, you know, not comfortable with it, but to specifically put policies in place to block other people from it is a completely different thing to not understand something and to, um, you know, and to, to maybe not connect with the concept behind it. Like that's, that's very human, right? There's a whole lot of things that I don't understand. There's a whole lot of things that I don't agree with, right? But that doesn't mean that I actively make it so that those things and the people that believe or do those things like can't exist in the world or can't have access to like basic healthcare or like basic business tools um, or somehow like tell people that like, you know, the this is immoral or you know, like treat these people as though they're they're less than, right? Like I could Yeah. So that's this is like my soapbox. So I do research in um I, a lot of my research focuses on um domestically trafficked youth and um the amount of danger that they now have been put in because of like all of this policy that's been passed. Like I'm so angry right now, I'm like starting to angry cry. <laughs> because it it just like it doesn't make sense to me and i i don't understand why it's not like a basic human right that people can access these things people are going to want it anyways didn't we i just don't understand how we didn't learn during like after the war on drugs <laughs> like just because you say it doesn't exist like doesn't mean that it does like that matches reality and just because you're taking away condoms doesn't mean that kids aren't having sex or people aren't having sex like, we learned that in, like, the 1950s and 60s. Like, I just, my brain, like, wants to blow up because I don't understand. I'm sure we could talk about, like, Sesta Fosta all day long. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I I agree. I think that, like, 
I think that cannabis is actually like a really great example of like taking a vice or alcohol or really any any like vice industry item, right? And figuring out a way to make it safe for people to regulate it, to like make it accessible, to tax it so that it benefits the economy. I think that there are ways to handle like things that not that are attractive to some people and maybe not to everybody. And the fact that like sex is sort of the last like holdout of um, confusion is uh, is is really interesting to me because to me that feels like it's more gendered than the other vices. Um, and I think that's where I struggle with it is um, is that it specifically affects one of the genders more than um, more than another. So. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely I, I I totally agree with you. I don't think that ignoring it um, or pretending that it doesn't exist does anyone any good. You know, I every time a a, a sex company, um, you know, tries to get started, like I've worked with a number of them, and like the first issue that they run into is always payment platform. Like because now even though like payment platforms exist because of sex from the early days of the internet. A lot of the payment platforms don't allow you to use them if it is uh, if if it's a sex company um, or if it's like a, you know, a, a sex based transaction. So um, like really early on, like, you know, most founders that I've worked with ran into some kind of roadblock just around like trying to have simple transactions. Um, and like the same is true of a lot of uh, cannabis products still as well. Like, you know, like obviously, since it's federally not legal and like CBD is okay, but THC is not. And, you know, there's a whole lot of like red tape around all of that. So I know that that's still in development um, as well, but I just think it says a lot about um, humans in general that like, this is a, this is a, a still a sticking point for a lot of people, but I am heartened to see that a lot of that there's a, a lot of progress has been made. There's a lot of really amazing women in sex tech that have made some like serious progress in the last 10 years on how we have conversations about sex. Absolutely. And I um I actually was talking um with my supervisor today um and we were talking about sort of the same thing that how people um you can work within a system, but that system has been designed to discriminate against you. And so thinking about now where there are these, um, you know, women who are coming up and like making kind of starting to break the system down or at least like make enough noise to get noticed is really incredible. Um, or, you know, whatever type of system like these, you know, everything has been created to keep the people who are in power in power. And so it's only going to like keep going unless we sort of start changing things. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing is, is it like it, it starts with women, but it most certainly does not end with us. Right. Like that's that's the thing that I find so interesting about the like um, the storytelling part of this is like, you know. We are. Like we're we're sort of like rattling cages in a lot of ways. Um, but again, the system wasn't built for us and we're rattling cages about that. But the system was built more for for we are able to slot into the system better than 
other groups are, right? Like when you start to think about like queer people, um, you start to think about other, like you start to, again, like going back to the money conversation, when you start to like really like hone in on different, like, you know, communities of people, whether you're talking about like, are we talking about like this straight women, right? Like that's like, that's one jar. And then, and it's like a pretty big jar, especially if you go with like cis straight white women. Um, and then like the, you know, the next jar could be, you know, cis straight or like cis queer women and then like cis trans or cis women of color and then like trans women and then like other queer folks. Like you, you start to, um, like for the, the more you segment out people who the system wasn't built for, you really start to see all of the problems. Um, and that's, that's where it gets really tricky is like the system really wasn't built for any of us. It was built for like cis straight men. And like, that's who it works for because it serves to keep everybody else in their place to serve, to keep that in power. And so, yeah, exactly. I feel like it's also our responsibility to like bring other people along, right? Like other people who the system doesn't serve. Like if you can, if you can like kick down the door into that system, you know, and, and like start to get them to like rearrange the boardroom, then like shove down a couple chairs and like bring people with you also. Yeah, exactly. Using your privilege and place of power to help other people, which I think you all, it sounds like your agency is doing, which is like incredible. We, we're definitely trying, you know, I, it's, it's not lost on me that like, uh, you know, as a, uh, this white woman that I, um, have, uh, you know, I have a, the next rung down, uh, on the power scale. Um, so, you know, I, I, as I've aged, I've tried to be cognizant of, um, like what I can put out into the world. And I think that's part of the reason why I left TV, right? Cause like, I, it became, became very clear to me that like, I could put things out into the world, but like, should I? <laughs> so, um, you know, just trying to be, trying to be aware and it's a work in progress. Like I'm definitely not perfect. Um, I fuck up all the time. Um, but you know, I, I'm like trying to work with companies that I believe in and lift them up and lift, lift up like, you know, those voices that are like, cause I'm not an engineer. So like, I can't take credit for any of the technology that people are creating, but like, I can, I'm like a great storyteller and I'm really good at relationship building, which is what PR is. And I can, uh, because of, you know, my background in anthropology and my love of history, like I can create context for things, which is a really important skill in storytelling. And so like, you know, creating relationships and creating context and telling a great story is how you get like important people's work into the right places. And so that's where PR feels like home for me is when I'm able to do that. And when I'm able to like sit in a room full of people who are in charge of a lot of like really expensive things and to tell them what they should care about and like kind of hold court. Like that's where I feel like the most powerful because then I can advocate for the stories that they haven't heard yet. And you almost like you have this captive audience and it's like this really is like special feeling when people actually care about the thing that you're talking passionately about. Yeah. And I think it's also like everybody has a story 
Absolutely. And if you don't have a story, I, I'm willing to bet you do. It's just that nobody gave you the place, the time, the attention to share your story. And so it's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have this podcast is because we firmly believe that everybody has a story. Everybody's going through something. Here's your space to share it, you know, and we will just amplify it. We will use your voice and just amplify it. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it and share your story. And I think, I think that is what our jobs should be in our position of power, you know, as, as white queer um both of us are gender neutral but as white queer gender newts we do we we do have a rung on the ladder let's amplify who we can and help raise these people up with us and it's it's actually really fun because you get to meet so many cool people and you get to hear so many cool things and you get to learn a lot about so many projects and so many things and it's just it's amazing and to have that ability is just I like it's just mind-blowing because like who wouldn't want this who wouldn't want to hear these stories of everybody who comes through your doors right and the fact that you're taking the time to do that and to amplify people's voices who need it the most especially women business owners femme business owners that's that's where it's needed and that's where it counts the most yeah and isn't it like you know, how powerful is it that we live in a time when we can find other people who ideologically we connect with, right? Like that I, it's not lost on me that part of the progress that we've made is because we have opportunities like this to talk across a computer and to find each other. Um, so that like other, other queer folks, other like, you know, rebels, misfits, weirdos, you know, whoever can find each other in ways that that it was so much harder before technology, before the Internet. Um, and the thing I love, um, you know, about where we are right now, like, you know, the Internet is very tiring, but it's also so special because I love that it is a place where community can continue to live on. Um, and you can also find the like you can really politicize every single thing that you do in a really productive way. I think it's really special that we have the ability to connect, um, you know, across like across the Internet and use like the access to information to be able to like support companies that are mission driven, support companies that are owned by people like us. And that make products for, you know, people in our communities or people that we care about. Um, it's not like you just have to buy whatever is available to you at the store. Like you can actually like use this like, you know, portal to the world to like be as thoughtful as you want to be about how you spend your money and about how you interact with like commerce. I have so many opinions on capitalism and we do not have to get into that, but like <laughs> we can say that for another time. Yeah. But yeah. That's a real we long also conversation. Have so many opinions on it. So, but I think it's so important that like we all um, can have a little bit more agency in how we participate mm -hmm. with capitalism than we used to have. Right. Oh yeah. So we're going to do a little bit of a hard segue. Um, not too hard of a segue, but 
because uh, I find all of this really interesting, but I the whole topic of like the internet and connecting with people um, actually takes me to, um, I promised my partner I would ask about this, um, <laughs> uh, about your Crohn's. Um, so a little backstory is my partner was diagnosed with Crohn's 16 years ago. She's found out in the last three months that she might actually be misdiagnosed with EDS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, but she lived most of her life thinking that she had Crohn's. So when she started playing roller derby, she actually looked to you and followed your journey um, to basically learn more about it. Ooh, um, yeah. So yeah, this one's like a real personal topic. Um, so similarly to your partner, I was, um, diagnosed, uh, 17 years ago. Um, and I really, you know, I really struggled at first with accepting my diagnosis. Um, I think I, I think for a few years, I, I hoped that one day I would go to the doctor and I would have some kind of magical test that would come back negative or whatever it was, right? Like there's not like a Crohn's test where it comes back negative or positive, but like, <laughs> you know, if there was, I hoped that that would happen for me. Um, but at some point, I realized probably my like third time in the hospital, <laughs> I realized that that was not going to happen. Um, and it was, it was clear to me that like I had a choice to make about how I wanted to look at it. Um, I, I kind of felt sorry for myself at first. And then I got really frustrated uh, because like nobody in my family has Crohn's disease um, except for like a distant, like a second cousin or third cousin or something. And so all the information that doctors gave me early on was really confusing because they talked about it being like, that it like runs in families and that like, you know, they were insistent that that there must be someone like that much like heart disease, that there must be someone in my family that has this condition. And I was like, I know every like, you know, every immediate family member of mine and like nobody has this unless it's undiagnosed. And like, you know, they're not telling me what like, you know, how their stomach feels every day. So like maybe, but also like this has never come up ever for anybody. Um. So I got really frustrated with the amount of information that I was getting or not getting. Um, and when I finally accepted that, like, I was going to have to figure out how to take care of myself, like, as a lifestyle um, with an autoimmune disease and, like, with specifically a GI disease, um, I, like, I bought every book that I could find on it. I read everything I could about like food combinations, about inflammation, about how to eat for inflammation. And the thing that I took away, I mean, I took away plenty of like really good information, but the thing that I took away from a lot of that was um, how much control I had over how I actually feel about the condition that I didn't choose. 
Like I didn't, I didn't choose to be sick, but how I feel about it, I absolutely choose. So I just decided that like, I wanted to use my body for whatever I could use it for and to whatever limit I could. And that that would, whatever version of that I could find would be better than like, like babying myself or like, you know, being like kind of fragile about it. So I just kind of like, like I started playing roller derby. I started doing CrossFit. Like I went kind of like full bore on. (laughs) (laughs) You went from like zero to 60 very fast. Totally. (laughs) I'm like very much that person. Like when I'm like, when I decide some, like I'm a Libra. So it's, it takes a lot for me to decide something. I'm very indecisive. But when I decide something, I am like all in because I've decided that like it's the right thing. Like when I actually make a decision, I know that it's the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I went like I went full all in. Um, and it's funny, like, you know, to my to my surprise, like when I really went all in on it was when I was my healthiest because there's I, you know, I definitely think that there is a um like there's a mental and emotional and psychological connection to our physical well-being. When I took control of that part of my health was really when I saw like when I went into remission for a long period of time. Um, so, you know, like I had a few surgeries um, in my early 20s and like just the whole process of like healing from that was like mortifying. Like nobody should like I couldn't talk about it then. I can talk about it now, but like I literally had to carry a tote bag to work with a sits bath in it. And I had to go into a, an office bathroom, fill up a little like tub, put it on the toilet so that I could clean my wounds from my surgery every day. Like yeah. in an office bathroom. Like there is nothing more embarrassing than that. Like when somebody walks in on you and you're like filling up a sits bath in the in in the the communal sink like it's terrible um and so I definitely like like that period was like a very like hard period for me because I felt very sorry for myself I was like no 20 year old should have to go through this like I'm so young like you know if you looked at me I looked healthy like this isn't fair um and so once I got once um I got past that surgery and like started playing roller derby like like, again, like roller derby just like really gave me something that like I needed at the time that that I found it. And I felt so powerful. Like, I felt like I'd really like taken control of something in my life. And, um, you know, like with anything, sometimes, you know, you you relapse, you get sick. Sometimes it's out of your control. I um, I ended up um, in the hospital in like 2012, like pretty early in my derby career. Um because I had blockage and it had nothing to do with anything I was doing. Um, it was just that I had a blockage that was creating, um, a lot of discomfort and sharp pains. And I meant that I also wasn't eating because I couldn't digest anything. Um, and after I got out of the hospital, that time was, (laughs) that's when I started CrossFit, um, and sort of like went even further into caring about food and fitness and, my mental health as it relates to my, um, physical well-being, And, uh, I went into six years of remission from that. And the only reason why I relapsed in 2018 was because of like, ex- 
extreme stress. And I blame mm-hmm. part of it on the 2016 election. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fair. fair. I think it's very fair. stressful. <laughs> yes. I like, it's so funny. Like the 2016 election, I just rewatched this episode of Broad City. Do you guys watch Broad City? Yes. Yeah. So there's like the whole like, uh, like story arc where like uh, Ilana can't like orgasm because of yeah. like the election. Yeah. So I just sort of like revisited this like part of my life in my brain. Um, after the election, um, it was so I was working freelance. I was doing contract work on different shows and it was so hard for me to work. Like I was so depressed, like everything like 2017 felt like a black hole for me. Like it just felt like such a dark time. Um, luckily like the TV show that I worked on was like filled with queer people, which was amazing. So by the end of the year, I like felt much better than like I started the year, but it kind of sent me into this like weird spiral where like by the time the beginning of 2018 happened, like I was really stressed. My mental health wasn't great. And then I got this uh, job on a show that was like really high pressure and all that like year worth of buildup after the election. I really, I really do think it contributed to my like emotional well-being and my like stress levels being kind of off the charts. But so as a result of that, I, uh, you know, had a, had a pretty bad relapse and like almost didn't, um, go to the big O that year. That's when I started playing with like a chest plate to like, um, mostly not because of the chest piece, but because it had like a stomach pad also. Um, cause I was really worried about getting hit in the stomach. I didn't even know if I was actually going to play. Um, maybe I shouldn't have played. I don't know, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was, I had to like face my illness all over again after six years of being in remission. And that was like a, a pretty big awakening. Cause when you, when you're in remission for that long, you, um, like that lifestyle sort of just sets back in, uh, like you, whatever lifestyle you've created, you go on autopilot. And, um, when you feel good, you, you know, you don't really think about, um, little things that deteriorate your well-being, And then one day it like smacks you in the face. But it's like, both both odd and i also have invisible illnesses and it made us more aware of what everybody else could possibly be going through but that also made us it made at least me like a really good advocate of like if you have something let's talk about it because i have chronic migraines i play i'm a jammer with seizures like let's talk so this way like you can get to know me and figure out my needs but i can also get to know you and figure out like where you're at with your migraines and so on and so forth. And it has been really empowering and it's been a weird journey. Cause like, it's something that I used to be ashamed of, but now I'm actually like, fuck it. Let's talk. I made it through this. You can make it through this. We're going to make it through it together. Let's figure it out. You know? Yeah. It's so interesting how like our immediate response is like shame. Yeah. yeah. And I wish I like understood better where that comes from. But my hope is that like, talking about it more means that like kids will be less fucked up if they see adults talking about it more. Cause I think it's because I always just saw like grown ups like growing up as these like unshakable forces, right? There were like these, you know, all of the strongest people I knew, like all you saw were all of their strengths. You never saw, you know, and then anybody who was like sick or had a disability or had an illness of some kind, like they were talked about in this very specific way that almost like, like required you to feel sorry for them. Right. 
And like, it never like, and it was always this, like, look how successful this person is despite this thing. Rather than being a like, this person is really successful and this thing is like a, a thing in their life. It was always a it was always a despite, not an and. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like I'm always I always feel like I have to like justify it or like prove it to people, um, like especially with like doctors and things like that. Um, and I have like all these like weird pictures on my phone of my stomach, like being so swollen and they just don't believe me until I show them. <laughs> And I'm like, no, like, really, like, this is what it looks like when I feel sick. And they're like, no, but like, you look fine and you're doing all the right things. And I like, no, but I'm like still low key sick all the time. Yeah. I mean, have you, have you two, do you feel that your interactions with doctors have changed over the years? I just don't go to doctors anymore. I've been misdiagnosed so many times. I've been dismissed. I've been told that I've had the flu. I had an ear infection. Meanwhile, like I actually have chronic migraines. I've had a migraine every day of my life since I was 16. Um, And it's just like they don't – migraines don't show up in scans, um, especially like chronic migraines. So what are they going to do about it? And at a certain point, it's just like, you know what? I got medical cannabis. I'm good. Yeah. I mean, I think that I've been told that, um, I mean, like, my number one, like, my anxiety disorder isn't real. And number two, that, like, my, uh, because I'm vegetarian, that's why I have so many, like, stomach problems because I, like, eat too many leafy greens. And that's when I, like, just, like, left the doctor's office. Um, because, you know, I've been vegetarian for a really long time and I think I would know. Um, yeah. And I just, I actually had a, um, an appointment with a nutritionist, um, yesterday and she was just like, you have to keep fighting. Like, I don't know what's wrong with you and I'm really sorry. And like, you just have to keep looking for answers. And I find that like in absence of like the help that like we ask for, like folks with chronic illnesses tend to like just explore every other like every like fringe opportunity to find some kind of wellness and I like like I started doing acupuncture because of like some of the discomfort um and I found a lot of success with it and when I told um a doctor I was I get um colonoscopies every other year just to check on things and when I told one of the doctors who performed my colonoscopy, when she asked like what I was doing to, um, you know, to, to address any discomfort, she thought I was crazy. She was like, that doesn't do anything. No, it's like so helpful. It's the only, like I had TMJ. Oh, I have TMJ and it was so bad. Um, like a couple of years ago that I like couldn't eat anything but like soup. And it was the only thing that helped acupuncture. It was amazing. So I'm all about it. Yeah, I am too. I just like, I feel like if, if doctors just listened to patients and like, maybe I'm crazy, (laughs) but like if doctors just listened to people about how they feel and validated that, like how you feel isn't always like measurable by the tools available to us in medicine. And instead worked with the patient to address that issue, even if the doctor thought that this person was like, 
making up this illness for whatever reason the doctor could think that like wouldn't it be so much more helpful if they just offered a different kind of help than just saying no you don't have that right (laughs) would that be crazy that that would be crazy I think I think this actually kind of goes back to the conversation that we were having prior to this topic about just femmes and women in general, because a lot of women and femme-identifying people tend to be misdiagnosed and dismissed with our symptoms. So that means that we're not being taken seriously, and that could be really damaging for a lot of us, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, it's the whole, like, this system is set up to keep you from talking to each other so it keeps people in power. I mean, even, like, subconsciously, it goes all the way to the top. is set up across the board for white, cis, straight men. Christian. The end. Yeah. Full circle. 100%. (laughs) I mean, and and if we, we can even connect it back to, to, uh, to sex tech, right? Like, the, the history, right? The history of vibrators is that, like, you know, women were diagnosed as like being hysteric or having hysteria um, and had like a doctor started using like an in-office vibrator of sorts to give women orgasms to get them to quote unquote calm down and to address their hysteria. And like that, like that was the genesis of, of like, of any sex toy. That's how vibrators were, were born. And so like just the act of, of like, you know, women expressing frustration meant that like, you know, that, that this was treated as like, this is a, a disorder, right? That frustration is a disorder. And so like, it's no wonder that, you know, people, people have this like, just women haven't been listened to (laughs) yeah the end that's the end of the story but like that's why there's hysterectomy is called a hysterectomy you know because of the hysteria and that's why you get your uterus removed for a hysterectomy yeah it, it it all connects to this like um you know this this experience that that we have starting from a very young age just in like how kids are talked to how adults listen to them like that colors how we're developed right like we obviously don't have to go like fully into like a child psychology or cognitive behavioral therapy um zone right and talk about like how our childhoods shape us but like they absolutely shape our experiences and they they shape how we all take up space in the world and how we um how we learn our value and our relationship to other things and other people and mm-hmm. it's only when we see other people challenging that, that we go, hey, wait a minute. And like, you know, to bring it full circle again, I think that that that's another opportunity that that a lot of people in roller derby and participating in roller derby offers. It's like, hey, wait a minute, like I can absolutely um, exist in multi in, you know, in multitudes. I can I can be aggressive. I can play a full contact sport. I can also, you know, be graceful. I can also be, um, you know, I can be as feminine or as masculine or as somewhere in the middle gray area as I want to be. And I can still occupy that space and like have like have all of these qualities that fall somewhere along a very like large spectrum. 
it isn't this binary of like, this is what is okay for women. And this is what is okay for men. Like it is a whole, like, it's a whole big pool of gray, like sludge. And that's like the gray sludge is way more fun than the like pink and blue binary. Absolutely. And I think what you were talking about with like roller derby is also really important. Like that it's not just like us learning about our value and like in the world, but also something um, that you mentioned with roller derby is um, having other people validate you and like validate your existence. And I think maybe that's a really large part of why roller derby is so like empowering is because so many people tell you like you are valued and I see you for exactly who you tell me you are today. And if that changes, that's like, that's awesome. Um, And that is, and that in itself is really um, makes you valuable to us. And I think like, that's also really important in this, like talk about, you know, race and gender and all of that. Like we're constantly told as, you know, minorities that, um, or like, who want, who have some part of like a minority identity that you don't belong and that you don't fit and like this isn't for you as well as us like trying to fight against that if that makes any sense mm-hmm. absolutely I think um you know uh, like we could do a whole talk about like mythologies and storytelling and like yes the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah you 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 introduced a topic that someone here is very passionate about. They don't call me Ragnarok for nothing. Yeah, it's it's so like, you know, I think what's so powerful about roller derby is that like you almost like get to step into a space where you have a clean slate to be. You can either be exactly who you are in that moment or you can be the person you've always felt that you were that you never had the opportunity to be anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's so special because you know, a lot of times we are like moving through the world, trying to fit ourselves into spaces that make sense. Um, and you rarely get the opportunity to like have this blank slate where you can reinvent yourself if you so desire. Um, but you can really just exist rather than in context to everybody else. You can just exist in context to the person that you are. And that is like, that's the life changing part of it. Thanks for listening to our interview with Rachel Rotten. Uh, We hope that you learned a little bit, learned a lot of it, enjoyed it. I don't know. I thought it was a really fun interview. I'm sure Odd feels the same way. We hope that Rachel Rotten feels the same way. Um, If you want to get in touch with us you can find us on instagram and facebook at frau podcast you can also shoot us an email at frau podcast at gmail.com and remember friends please don't. please please remember oh don't fuck this up <laughs> you faked me out it's not fair <laughs> okay are you ready yeah don't don't be, be a, a dick. dick what the fuck was that okay wait i'm just gonna do it okay don't be a dick Okay, and then Kate can align it up, and then we're done. And we're sorry, I- we're sorry, Kate. We know you're a busy business power head bitch in charge.